We're going to open our Bibles to two places here this evening. Open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading from Ephesians first. Genesis chapter 2, <clears throat> we're going, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2 and then Genesis chapter 3. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 1. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. And now Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3. Begin in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His precious Word to our hearts this evening. These are two very important passages. And by my saying that, I do not mean uh, to give you the impression that there are insignificant portions of God's Word. All of it is God's eternal Word. But certain portions clearly reveal extremely vital truths to us without which we cannot understand the rest of the Bible. Now, Genesis chapter 3, as we have just read, is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Properly understood, uh, this passage of Scripture is the key to understanding the condition of the world in which we live. Moreover, it sheds a great deal of light upon the religious and theological confusion that engulfs us. In these words, the Holy Spirit describes how Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness into sin. But a deeper look into this event reveals a further important truth. The serpent's words birthed false religion into history. Now I want us to consider two religions, two vital questions, and two historical facts. We're beginning a new series this evening. It is entitled, By Grace Ye Are Saved taken from our passage in Ephesians. I think it is an important time as we are still in a, uh, a very important growing period in the time of our church, in the history of our congregation. And as we are seeking uh, oneness of mind, it's, it's important for us to have a good, clear, doctrinal unity. <clears throat> in light of that, we're going to be studying for some weeks the doctrine of grace. And uh, I do pray with all of my heart that it will be uh, edifying. Uh, I trust that you will uh, find it encouraging. I think that you will also find it challenging because I think many of us have... Uh, an unclear understanding of the doctrine of grace. And perhaps as we study through the components of what I call the doctrine of grace, we'll begin to have a greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ and that we will have a greater unity together as we understand God's glorious grace to sinners. <clears throat> So I want us to take up, uh, first of all, as we uh, have an introduction tonight, and tonight is simply introduction to what will be uh, an extended series 
The first thing uh, on the list here is two religions. From the moment, from the very moment that Satan uttered those poisonous and polluting words, two religions have existed. Only two religions have existed since that time in history. That is God-centered religion and man-centered religion. That's it. There are no others. Every faith, denomination, or professing religious group falls into one of these two categories. God-centered religion or man-centered religion. And when I speak of God-centered religion, I'm using religion in the best sense of the word. The worship of the one true God. I'm not simply talking about religious rituals and ceremonies that people have in their false notions of God, but I am talking about in the truest sense the worship of the Most High God. Now, it's easy to recognize which category some groups fall into. On the other hand, some attempt an unhealthy, confusing mixture of the two categories. And these are not as easy to discern without carefully examining them by the Holy Scriptures. Within Christianity, man-centeredness has crept in unawares, so to speak. And it is the prevailing view in most professing communities in our day. Now, while some have called human history the battle of the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which is uh, to be found in verse 15, where God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. <clears throat> While some have called history because of this, the battle of the two seeds, so to speak, we might also think of history as the struggle between God-centeredness and man-centeredness. Now, this struggle lies at the very heart of the Old Testament and the New Testaments of God's Holy Word. And it clearly emerges throughout the history of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God teaches that God-centered religion is all of Christ and all of grace. That is why the series is entitled, By Grace Ye Are Saved. And that's why we read the extended passage there in Ephesians chapter 2. The two religions into which all religions in some way or another may be classified 
begin in the utterance of Satan's lie. Ye shall be as gods. And the only true saving religion is that which we find clearly declared in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So, this is why we embark upon the present study. <clears throat> we want to stand, brethren, in submission before the text of God's holy word and examine ourselves and our faith. We want to plead with the God of heaven and earth to search us, to correct us, to instruct us by His Spirit and His Word. So, we will be looking at the two religions as they have unfolded. But of course, our focus will be the saving grace of the living God. That brings us to two vital questions. And that is this. <clears throat> or these are they. This series of studies seeks the biblical answer to these two questions. Who is God? Who is He? Secondly, what has God done to save sinners? Who is God and what has God done to save sinners? That's the very heart of what we'll be studying for the next several months. And now let's consider two historical facts. <clears throat> it will be impossible to study this subject without referring to theological terms and labels. I wish there were a way we could entirely avoid that. But it will be obvious uh, as we attempt to put these doctrines uh, before us, as we set them out from Scripture and then attempt to understand them, and as we look at history and how they've been understood through history, we're going to have to use certain theological terms. Now, there's no way to get around that. There will be terms like Arminianism, be terms like Calvinism, and there will be others that will surface throughout the study. But our purpose is not simply some kind of partisan polemic. In other words, I'm, I'm not simply trying to take up a camp and beat everyone else over the head. There will be moments when it will certainly feel like that's what I'm doing. But the purpose uh, is, is not simply uh, polemics or, or argumentation. Our purpose is to remain as faithful and honest with the text of God's Word as He will grant us. That's my desire I come having been brought to see these doctrines. I was not raised in them. 
As a matter of fact, when the Lord, shortly before the Lord dealt with me, uh, I was warned strongly by a couple of people that I greatly revered that these doctrines were, were bad stuff. And uh, so my mind was prejudiced against them. And it was only long study and much prayer that began to knock down my previous arguments by the force of God's Word. So, I will be attempting not simply uh, to bring some kind of uh, party spirit to this, but simply the best exposition I can bring you regarding these doctrines as we find them in the Word of God. Now, I will do something that may be somewhat uh, different to some of you. But we're going to begin with an historical introduction that may last a couple of weeks. So that we may understand something of the unfolding of these doctrinal issues. Now, there is a very real reason that I want to do that. And there are two historical facts that I want to point out so that we can uh, more confidently understand why we believe what we believe. The first historical fact is this. The battle over God-centeredness and man-centeredness has raged throughout human history since Genesis 3 and the serpent's lie. There has been a struggle in every generation as to who the true God is and who the false gods are and how the true God deals with men. This is not simply a modern theological debate. However, throughout the history of the church, men such as Augustine and Pelagius, Luther and Erasmus, Gomerus and Arminius, Toplady, Whitfield, Gill, and Wesley have all engaged in this battle. It has certainly become more acute since the time of the Reformation. And we might look at these doctrines in their present form and understanding as having uh, been birthed through that time that we call the Reformation. We may call them reformational truths, but they didn't originate there. They ultimately became the battleground as it has surfaced on and off throughout history. The second theological fact is this. John Calvin did not formulate what are referred to as the five points of Calvinism. He did not formulate those. The followers of Jacob Arminius were called remonstrants. And that means a remonstrant is one who raises a formal protest. The remonstrants formulated five points of dissent from 
what we refer to as the Reformed faith. The theology that was developing out of that incredible time called the Reformation. John Calvin would be utterly horrified that the system bears his name as such. And we do not bear his name. We bear the name of Christ. John Calvin did not die for us. John Calvin was a sinner who stood in need of the Savior as we. We revere him as a brother, but he is neither our Lord, our Savior, nor our leader. Now, the answer, uh, and a historical and theological answer to the remonstrance and their five points, which were actually the five points of Arminianism, came from a gathering, a theological gathering known as the Synod of Dort. And those five points are referred to today as the five points of Calvinism. But there are many who do not understand or did not or do not know that historically John Calvin did not formulate them. They were the biblical response to the five points of Arminianism. The five points of Arminianism came first. So, I want us to consider for the rest of our time these three things this evening. First of all, the methodology of our study for the next few weeks. The methodology. Secondly, I want us to consider... God's sovereignty in salvation. And thirdly, God's grace in salvation. Satan's lie in the garden not only brought mankind into the long horror that we might refer to as the night of sin. At the very core of man's fall is the lie of man-centeredness as opposed to God-centeredness. Ye shall be as gods. Ye shall be as gods. God is is not really good, Satan was intimating. Why look, he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have this fruit because he knows that in the day you partake, you're going to be like him. And quite obviously, the implication of that is if you're like him, He doesn't have the rule over you anymore. If you're God's, if you're like God, you don't need His rulership. You don't need His reign. You can reign on your own. In other words, His will 
is what's holding you in bondage. You need to be free so that you can walk in your will. Has God really said this? You're not going to die. You're going to be like Him when you have this fruit. That lie plunged man into bondage, destruction, sin, darkness. But God in His mercy saves men out of that bondage by His glorious grace. Genesis 3, man's bondage. Ephesians 2, the glorious liberation of man by the grace of God. Paul's exposition of Ephesians chapter 2 begins with man's horrible plight. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses and sins. Walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Men are in bondage because of the lie. You will be as gods. You can walk your way. Have it your way. So as we come to the Scriptures, and as we do this study, I want us to consider this method of the study that we're uh, coming to. We will, we will be looking at, at what uh, we believe to be the teaching of God's Word regarding His eternal saving purpose in Jesus Christ. Who is God? What has He done to save sinners? Just remember those two questions. That's going to run throughout the entire study. Who is God? What has He done to save sinners? We believe, brethren, that all of our doctrine is summed up in what the prophet Jonah says. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That's our doctrine in a verse. We want to see it unfolded throughout the Scripture. Now, <clears throat> since we are coming to the teaching of God's Word, it will be inevitable that I will have to do something that appears to be like proof texting. And uh, well, while there is a place for certain proof texting, I, I want us to see if the Lord will help us. That this isn't just a matter of three or four verses strung out here and there. I want us to see how this flows throughout the fabric of Scripture. And that's why the, the study is going to unfold for several months. Because I want us to take some time and see passages, not just a verse, 
but how those verses sit in their context and how that context relates to other things that the Scriptures say. Now this, this is my methodology. A. <laughs> Christ must be exalted, not man. Now that is not a, uh, a straitjacket that I'm going to bind around the Scriptures. I trust that we will see that as we unfold passage after passage, it's just a simple declaration of God. This Bible, while it is about the salvation of man, is about the glory of God in Jesus Christ in saving sinners. If we were to ask our modern evangelicalism, what's the Bible about? Likely we would hear them say, as I have heard some say, oh, well, the Bible, that's, well, that's all about uh, uh, you know, men being saved. Well, that, that's true. But notice where it starts in that thinking. Rather than the glory of God in Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners. This book is about Jesus Christ. It's about God the Father and His purpose to save sinners through His Son. So Christ must be exalted, not man. <clears throat> so while there will be names, systems of theology, theological terms discussed from time to time, it's not our desire to exalt any man but to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ because I believe in the clearest terms this is what the Scriptures teach. This is the declaration of the Word of God. The glory of God in Christ Jesus in the salvation of sinners. Now secondly, let's talk about terminology since I've alluded to it. I will always try to define in this study unfamiliar terms. We will encounter... Uh, many of them throughout the course of this study. But there are two of them that I want to mention tonight. First of all, it's the term grace. We saw it several times in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace, by grace ye are saved. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is grace, grace, grace. What is grace? Well, the Bible, as we will see, reveals that it is the unmerited kindness of God. The saving mercies of God bestowed upon those who deserve nothing but His just wrath and anger. Grace is not simply something that God didn't have to do. It isn't simply something that you can't earn. It is God's Mercy and love poured out upon those who justly deserve the, the exact opposite. They deserve His wrath, His fury, His anger, eternal hell. But God in His mercy lavishes upon His people His glorious grace. 
Secondly, you will hear me say the doctrine singular of grace generally as opposed to the doctrines plural of grace. And my reason for saying that is because I want us to realize that in the Synod of Dort this was a specific theological debate. The Arminians had studied Reformed doctrine. They'd studied Calvin's writings and the emerging uh, predestinarian systems. And they said, in these five things, we believe there is error, and this is what we think is what the Scripture teaches. Error on the part of, of Calvin and, and those who held similar views. And the, the Synod of Dort came back and said, well, you've given us this point, and here are the scriptural replies to that. And here's your second point, here are the scriptural replies to that. And here's your third point, and here's the scriptural reply to that. So, they were answering specific attacks upon what was being taught. Up to that point, there was no five doctrines. There was simply the doctrine of Scripture of God's saving grace. So, I prefer to say the doctrine of grace. That these individual doctrines, though we may separate them to study them, they don't come in the Bible in that form. The apostles did not teach them in that form. They are a handy way of understanding what numerous texts in the Scripture ultimately mean when we put them together. But when we stand back and take off the, the theological debate, as we study through the Scripture, I think that we simply see that there is one teaching. Salvation is of the Lord. It is the doctrine of grace. And these are the component parts. So that is simply my preference. You may disagree with me. If you will, that's fine. Because all we're doing is talking about how we package what we're looking at. But brethren, I want us to realize the Bible didn't come to us in a neat, systematic, theological framework. God didn't give it that way. He could have. He did not. He gave us Genesis which sprawls in an, in an, in an incredible uh, landscape of stories through 50 chapters. And then Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We're, we're given all kinds of narrative. We see things that God says and things that God does. And we see the things that men do. We see God creating a glorious nation out of one man. We see God's promise and the unfolding of His promise in the seed of the woman. And we see a unified picture in numerous writings. Narrative, poetry, wisdom writings, prophecy, apocalyptic writings, the writings of the, of the New Testament epistles, many different types of literature all put together, all uh, written at various times by various 
inspired writers and not, and very often not put in nice, neat packages. So we need to understand these doctrines don't sit nicely under a heading. Okay, let's see. Let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 6. And here we will find laid out in 20 verses the doctrine of man's depravity. It, it isn't that way. So we want to be careful as we move through the Scripture in this study to try to see how these things are expressed and realize that there is just the unfolding of God's eternal purpose to save His people from their sins. The doctrine of grace. I hope that makes sense to you. So, the term grace and then the doctrine of grace. Next, I want to address the issue of controversy for a few minutes. <clears throat> we must be very careful when we enter into controversy. When we are in the midst of the passion of controversy, it is easy to misunderstand and it is easy to be misunderstood. I'm not pursuing controversy for controversy's sake. I would love not to have another controversy in my life. But that's unrealistic. Uh, we're going to have many of them if we stand for what we believe the Scriptures teach. This is inescapable. <clears throat> I do desire to obey the words of Jude. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I will be setting before you the doctrine of grace. Not just in the way it was packaged at the Senate of Dort, but as we see it in a panorama set out for us in Scripture. And I believe that this is the faith Throughout the studies ahead, I will be saying some very strong things, but not for the purpose of being harsh. As Paul admonishes us that we are to speak the truth in love, I want to obey that fervently. I have a charge from the Apostle Paul, as all elders, as all teachers of God's truth have. It is this, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. I desire in preaching these things is that many captives will be set free. And may God grant me the grace to instruct in meekness and patience and not simply in passion. I am passionate about these things because they I believe they are truth. I believe they are the Word of my God. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9 says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. With grace. 
It is under this end that we embark upon this study. That brings us to consider then God's sovereignty in salvation. Our methodology will be to exalt Christ, not man, the doctrine of grace, not just men's systems. And I'm not against systems. God is systematic. But what I'm saying is we're not trying to just be bound up. by men's traditions. Though there will be much terminology, we certainly want to focus on the issue of grace and the doctrine of grace and we want to approach all controversy in meekness and impatience. Let us therefore then consider God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, this may sound odd. Maybe this is odd terminology to you. I will say God's method in salvation. But if uh, that troubles you, put in those terms, let's just go back to the two important, uh, two important facts that I wanted to set before you. <clears throat> and that is, or two important questions, I'm sorry. Who is God and what has God done to save sinners? Who is God and what has God done to save sinners? Well, we want to talk about the method, if I can put it in those terms. First of all, I I alluded to this in a a message uh, a couple of months ago. I bring us back to this idea of how something is accomplished. How something is accomplished. When someone wants to accomplish a goal or resolve a problem, he must carefully consider what he wants to do and how He wants to do it. He must have a goal and then the means to execute procuring that goal, accomplishing the purpose. In other words, an agent who wants to accomplish a specific goal must set about using proper means to do so. Everybody with me when I say that? When somebody wants to accomplish a purpose, he must set about with the proper means to accomplish it. It's that simple. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5, gives us an example of this in Solomon. Let's listen to the Word of God. It says, And behold, Solomon declares, I purpose to build an house under the name of the Lord my God. Alright? There's an agent. He has a purpose. And that's to build a house for the Lord. King Solomon, the, the agent, the somebody, had a goal of building God's house. And so, he secured Hiram to supply him with cedar and fir trees. And he appointed 70,000 carriers, 80,000 hewers of stone, 3,300 foremen over the workers. And he gathered precious stones for laying the foundation. Solomon was the agent. Building the house for the Lord was his goal. And he utilized numerous means to accomplish his task. The agent applies means 
to achieve His goal. You're going to hear me say that numerous times throughout this study. In other words, who is God? The agent. What's His purpose? The salvation of sinners. What's He done to save them? How does He do it? What are the means? The agent is the who. The means are the how. The goal is the what. That's, I don't know how to say it any simpler than that. Who, how, and what. Now, how then is this salvation, this purpose, this plan of God accomplished? Well, the Bible reveals the story of God's almighty, wonderful work of saving sinners through Jesus Christ. Now, let's consider the who, the how, and the what of this salvation. First of all, the agent, the who, in salvation of sinners, is the triune God. And this is wonderfully set forth for us in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved." In whom, that's the beloved, Christ Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. There's the goal, that's the purpose. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. There's that word grace. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, move up to verse 11. In whom also, meaning the Lord Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, that's the goal again, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. There was a plan. There's the execution of the plan, the goal, the means that He's going to do it. <clears throat> in whom, excuse me, that ye should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom... Ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. Uh, in this passage, we see the triune God. We see the Father. We see the Son. And we see the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> All three persons of the Godhead are vitally involved in the salvation of sinners. And what are the means? How does God save sinners? Well, the Scripture reveals that there is a perfect unity among these members of the Godhead and that each of the glorious persons of the Trinity has his role in the rescue 
of sinners. As we will uh, see in the studies to come, this is something you'll hear regularly, the Father purposed salvation. Notice, according as He, the Father, hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Now there is the Father purposing salvation, the Son accomplishing salvation. We have it there, in whom we have redemption through His blood, in verse 7. The forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation. The Father purposes, the Son accomplishes, the Holy Spirit applies. We'll see this over and over again as we unfold the Scriptures. Now, these are not things that I'm trying to, again, wrap around the Scriptures. These are not glasses that I'm trying to make you see the Scriptures through. I'm trying to say that after years of study, this is what emerges. And we stand in the light of it and praise God. Because this is what it says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. He purposed it before the foundation of the world. He accomplished it in history through His Holy Son. And He applies it through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. A full, a free, a gracious salvation that's all of Christ and all of grace. Salvation is of the Lord. Well, the agent, the triune God, the means, the Father purposes, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies, and will unfold each of those. And then the goal. And of course, God's glory through the redemption of His people is the goal of all of this. God's glory. You say, well, I mean, how does my salvation work into this? I mean, I, I'm so thankful for my salvation. The Bible talks about the salvation of sinners. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the salvation of sinners in there. Where does this fit? It's all to the glory of God. To the glory of the God who was purchased, uh, purposed, and purchased such a glorious redemption. The testimony of Scripture is abundant regarding this. Listen to just a few of these. To God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. What Paul writes. Brethren, he punctuates what he's saying by, Amen. Truth. I believe it. I embrace it. Amen. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout ages, all ages, world without end. And He says it again. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. Brethren, when Paul gets on this ground, he can't help but praise the Lord. This isn't a matter of dry theological wrestling. Brethren, this is the ground for praising and worshiping and adoring God because this is His end in all of it. To bring glory to Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ 
in the church. What's the church? The gathering of the redeemed. Those that Jesus Christ died upon the cross to save for all eternity. Those for whom that precious blood was shed. His glorious head was pierced. His back was cut with whips. His hands and His feet and His side were cruelly pierced by His tormentors. Why? That there might be eternal glory to God the Father in the redemption of hell-deserving sinners. Peter writes, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It sounds like he's been reading Paul because then he says, Amen. Brethren, our hearts should resound with that Amen when we hear these things. This is not just verse 21, chapter 3. It is the very explosion out of Paul's heart, out of Peter's heart. Look what our God has done. Bring Him glory. Bring Him glory. It's all through Christ in the redemption of sinners like you and me. To Him be glory, world without end. Amen. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The study of the doctrine of grace is not simply to say, well, we're here and uh, we've got our little camp over here. Surely we're the people. No, brethren, what we strive to do is to set before men the glory of our God. Amen. That's why we enter into a study like this. Amen. Not to say, my team, your team. But to say, glory! And to say to our brethren who do not agree with us, you rob the glory of our God when you lean into man-centeredness as opposed to God-centeredness. The doctrine of grace is not some invention of man in order to give some man in his system glory. But it is the teaching throughout the fabric of Scripture which brings eternal glory to the God who has stooped to save sinners like you and me. Since the psalmist infallibly proclaims, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Then we may be sure that God possesses everything infinitely necessary to successfully design and accomplish His glory in the salvation of sinners. Brethren, His glory is all wrapped up in this thing. Do you believe that He would put together some kind of fallible system dependent upon men 
in order to gain His glory for eternity. This is no little matter. And that brings us to close with this thought. When we see God's sovereignty, His absolute rule over all things, including the salvation of sinners, brethren, it is not because somehow or another we're a strange or odd group of people that don't believe in evangelism. The charge that's often brought to us. But brethren, because our hearts burn with a holy jealousy for the God who in His mercy and grace drew us out of the fire. It is our desire to bring Him glory and to defend, not as if He needs our defense, but to defend by declaring His Scriptures who He is, what He has done to save sinners. And that's why those two historical facts are important. This has been wrestled throughout the ages, not simply recently. And it's not John Calvin's doctrine. It is the teaching of the Word of God. Enunciated by certain men at certain times that helps us perhaps to see the glory of these things. But they are the fleshly messengers simply pointing us to the testimony of God's Word. So, this important issue of God's sovereignty and salvation, of course, must be seen in the light of His grace in salvation. We go back to where we began, Ephesians 2. Let us look at verse 5. Even when we were dead, even when we were damaged a little bit, uh, stumbled just a bit by problems and mistakes, even when we were dead. We didn't just have a problem. We weren't just maimed by sin. Friends, we were killed by sin. Even when we were dead, hear it, hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ by grace. Ye are saved. Ye are delivered. That's our doctrine. Jonah said it. Salvation is of the Lord. Paul said it. By grace ye are saved. So the Word of God teaches us in this. That the gospel of our God is the power of our God unto salvation. And we want to be clear on what that gospel is. And in order to be clear on it, we need to know who God is. 
and what he's done to save sinners. And we're not simply interested in recent theological debates, but the fact that this doctrine spreads throughout all of Scripture and has spread throughout all of history and has surfaced over and over again. And though we may have a better articulation by looking at these doctrines individually, it is all one glorious fabric of salvation to the glory of Almighty God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the redemption of sinners, which is all of His grace. God-centered religion is all of Christ and all of grace. The Father purposed it. The Son accomplished it. The Holy Spirit applies it. And it is a successful, holy, righteous, eternal salvation. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Brethren, pray that as we begin to unfold these in the weeks ahead, that we will see the glory of God. The glory of God through Jesus Christ in the church, world without end, to the praise of the glory of His grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.